Hound podcast. Hello and welcome to a Horse and Hound podcast advertising series. This is the sixth episode of the Champion Safety Series. I'm Pippa Room, magazine editor here at Horse and Hound, and I have three guests with me for this final episode of our series. So let's introduce them. First up, we have rider Susanna Stanning. Hello, Susanna. Hi there. Morning to everyone. Great to have you with us. And we're also welcoming back to the podcast two people who've already contributed to this series. First of all, Helen Riley. Helen is the brand manager at Champion. Hi, Helen. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good to be back. And last but not least, we also have Ben Hanna, who is a production engineer at Champion. Hello, Ben. Hello, good morning to everybody. Brilliant. Well, we have introduced our three guests and we are going to start by talking to Susanna. Susanna, you're a rider who has had a serious fall. You were wearing a champion helmet and we want to find out a bit more about what happened, how the hat helped you and what the team back at Champion found when they looked at your helmet following that accident. Let's start by finding out a bit more about you. Where in the country do you live? What's your background with horses? Well, I live in Somerset uh, with my husband, Roddy. Um, I've ridden since I was a small child. Um, I moved down to Somerset ooh, 15 years ago and started riding out for champion racehorse trainer, Paul Nichols. Um, and that got me involved in point pointing and following on from there, team chasing. So we keep about 18 horses here for hunting, team chasing, and for Roddy, who's a professional polo player to pay polo on in the summer. So we're fairly busy. <laughs> I was gonna say 18 horses probably keeps you quite busy. And when did this accident take place? So we were competing at the Cotswold team chase at the end of October last year. Okay, so that's sort of four months before recording this. And you said that you were at a team chase competing. Tell us a bit more about what actually happened on that day. So uh, Roddy and I were riding in the team together and he unfortunately suffered a fall in front of me um, and this brought my horse down too. My horse suffered a rotational fall and came over and landed uh, on top of my head with his hindquarters, uh, which knocked me out. So um, I don't remember too much about it after that. Yeah, so my next question was going to be, you know, what happened immediately after that? The answer being that, that you don't remember a lot about it. Presumably, you've sort of been told by other people what happened. Were, what were your injuries and, and were you sort of taken to hospital immediately? What did happen? Yeah, well, I was treated at the scene by a brilliant team. We were incredibly fortunate that there were paramedics and a, a British Horse Racing Authority doctor there almost immediately. Um, they assessed me, um, stabilised me, uh, called in uh, a road ambulance in order to transport me. They also then assessed Roddy as well because he'd had a fall. Um, thankfully, during the time that I was on the floor, I regained consciousness after about five minutes. And so my first sort of recollections after the fall were in an ambulance waiting to go to hospital and uh, thinking, oh, should I ride again today or am I done for the day? Typical horsey response, I think. But yes. presumably you, you were taken to hospital and you didn't ride again that day. I, I uh, remember very earnestly saying to my groom, I don't think I should ride the other two. I think you should take them home. So I was taken up to Gloucester Hospital and uh, treated there, had a CAT scan, 
um, which thankfully found no bleeds to the brain and no other damage to me apart from a small uh, fracture to my skull. Gosh, well, any fraction to the skull sounds like it's, it's serious and it could have been worse. And when did you see your helmet again afterwards that you've been wearing while you were riding? Yeah, well, I didn't see it in person until I came out of hospital. But by later that evening, um, my groom had sent the photos to me um, and I was quite astounded to see them. Um, I, I couldn't believe uh I mean, at, at that stage, I couldn't really believe that I was there awake and alive, um, considering the fall that I'd suffered. Mm. And just describe for us, a lot of people will have seen those photos, but for those people who haven't, and because uh, the podcast is an audio, not a visual medium, describe for us what did the helmet actually look like? Well, it had a um, couple of concavities in it where it, it had crumpled inwards, inwards and uh, a crack on one side, and it was very very misshapen and what did you do with the helmet well immediately i knew that it would be relevant for champion to to see it and uh, mel was incredibly quick to touch base with me and say please make sure that uh no one throws your hat out um because we would like to see it and to assess it so it was yes it was carefully put in a box in the tack room and kept waiting for when they were ready to look at it Mm, so uh, Susanna referring there to Mel Newman, one of the champion team who, who got in touch about that. And presumably you wanted to be back on a horse as soon as you could. So did you sort of head off to get another hat fitted? I already had a hat that I could ride out in at home, but I didn't have a competition hat. Uh, I need a skull cap for competing in team chases. So I touched base with Mel and she offered to meet me at Your Horse Live and to see if they could fit me with a new crash hat. Okay. And just tell us about your recovery sort of since the accident. As I said, it's about four months before we're recording this. How have you been since then? It took an awful lot longer than I thought it was going to be. As you said uh, before, probably a stubborn horse rider who thought, I'll be fine in a week or two. It took me about eight weeks to get back on a horse. Um, I suffered sort of some very heavy concussion symptoms, a lot of nausea, headaches, um, problems with my vision, problems with focusing. So I'm now back to riding and, and I feel like I'm back to my full strength. Yeah, well, it's good to hear that. And I know that Champion were keen to know that you were sort of fully recovered before they made public the results of the sort of investigation they've done into your helmet. So it's good to hear that you are now feeling better. And you mentioned there was a small fracture to the skull. Is that anything that's going to cause any concerns or is that something that, you know, is fine now and, and it won't cause any problems in the future? No, the doctors were never particularly worried about that. They felt it would just knit together on its own, thankfully. Great. Oh, well, it's good to hear that and that you have made that full recovery. And I think since then, Susanna, you've been keen to sort of spread messages about helmet safety to other riders. What are you looking to tell people? What would you like people to know? Well, I think obviously anyone that competes, you know, we have to wear a an up to standard helmet. And that goes without saying that we should all be wearing those when we're competing, but also we should be wearing them at home as well. But the thing that I really took away from this experience was the fact that shortly before the accident, 
I felt that the hat I was using to compete in, that I'd had it for some time and it was probably a little loose fitting and so on, and that really I should be wearing a new one. So about three weeks before this accident, I went to my local tack shop and got fitted for a new hat. And I think that without that new one, the injuries that I suffered could have possibly been far worse. Looking at the hat I was wearing, it, it was a lot older than it should have been. And perhaps I have been a bit lax about uh, updating my hat as regularly as I should do. So I think for me, the main thing is that actually, if you're competing a lot, make sure that you change your helmet on the recommended amount of time. Mm. Well, that's definitely a good recommendation. Thank you, Susanna. Helen, I'd like to bring you in here. Can you tell us what happened next after the pictures of, of Susanna's ha helmet went on social media? I think they were they were pretty widely shared, I think. Sure, absolutely. Um, so the images uh, were first brought to my attention by Mel, our marketing manager, uh, pretty much as soon as they were posted. Um, my first reaction was, oh my goodness, how is the rider? That's what we needed to know foremost. So um, Mel started making the inquiries and then we uh, watched how the questions and things unfolded on social media. Um, we got in touch with Mel and asked Mel to um, obviously secure the helmet coming back so that we could make sure that we could do a full study on it after. We could totally understand why there was so much interest on social media. It, it's not widely understood how your helmet works to protect you in these circumstances. And of course, every impact is unique and will display damage in the helmet in very different ways. So the image of the hat may have looked shocking to the untrained eye, but Ben and I knew immediately that this hat had sustained a massive impact and absorbed a large amount of energy. So we were very, very keen to get it back and um, have a look and do a full report um, on behalf of, and you know, to be able to speak to Susanna about it after and, and give us some information because from looking at the hats, we can work out, you know, the kind of energies and, and the kind of forces that have been applied to the helmet. Mm. And people, as you say, were asking questions on social media about the helmet and about what happened and how it had performed. What sort of questions were people raising? Um, well, there was there was various and, and, and lots of them. But, you know, the, the kind of things that I think people don't fully understand is is how the hat behaves when it absorbs energy and, you know, when it absorbs the impact. And so there were, you know, why did the hat crumple in this way or... How can your head be okay if it's crumpled in like that? And um, so, there, I mean, for, for example, the question on why did the hat crumple in this way? Well, the answer to that is because this particular helmet was crushed under no resistance. And we know that now from having seen the imagery of Susanna's accident, um, that Susanna's head wasn't in the helmet fully. So uh, the helmet had depressed in, in uh, certain areas, just in the same way as if you'd run over it with your car. And then there was other questions like, how can your head be okay if it crumpled in like that? Well, we know from the images again that Susanna's head was not fully inside. The forces that were being applied had actually squeezed Susanna's head partly out of the hat, just in the way that if you squeeze a toothpaste tube, it's expelled from the tube. 
and the flexible nature of the harness fitting permits this action to it to, to an extent to prevent that further damage so it's really interesting to see you know people's reactions and say you know surely a, um, a helmet shouldn't do that surely it should shatter not crumple but we make them purposefully to be able to crumple i mean you may have heard um, uh, people talking about when they make cars and and they're testing cars and they reference to the crumple zone of the bonnet area and not the shatter zone and that is because we have to make the materials of the helmet absorb the energy and if you made a shell for example that was very rigid in nature that shattered it just wouldn't absorb the energy in the same way as it would if you made a flexible shell so these are the reasons why we make the products with the flexible materials to enable them to crumple because it's that crumpling that absorbs all the energy Mm. Okay, well, Ben, we're going to bring you in as well to tell us a bit more about Susanna's hat, which I think you've had your hands on and been looking at. Can you remind us, first of all, and I know this is something you went through on the first episode of this series, but it feels like quite a long time ago, so I think we could all do with a reminder. What are riding hats made of? What was inside Susanna's helmet? So helmets, um, when it comes to the safety of their design, are made up of three principal components. There's the outer shell, which is normally made of a rigid plastic like ABS or uh, a composite material such as fiberglass. Uh, inside that shell, you then have an expanded polystyrene liner. And then the whole helmet is held to your head with the harness. And this will typically, uh, although it may be covered in something like suede or leather, this will have a strong um, synthetic webbing inside it, which is designed to keep up with the forces. All these materials are designed to absorb energy under impact and under crushing events by being deformed. Um, as, as Helen said, um, if the materials weren't designed to crumple or move in any way, then all the force of the impact would be transmitted to the rider's head. So by the very nature of these materials, we expect after an impact that, and depending on the level of the impact, that the um, helmet should have been deformed in some manner. And that's a really important point that when a helmet goes through a serious fall like this, you don't expect it to come out looking perfect. The fact that the helmet was altered in the way it looked shows that it has done its job, that, that uh, it's not that it didn't work. The fact that it's, it's, it's been changed shows 100% that it did do its job. Yes. And when that helmet comes back to champion in a situation like Susanna's, what happens to it? What sort of analysis is carried out? So the first thing that I do when I get that helmet back um, and for any helmet that gets returned to us after an accident is I go and find in our lab a known good helmet. So one of our helmets of identical design. Um, I will then make sure I've documented almost every angle of the helmet in terms of taking photos and recording where the damage is and marking on the helmet in pens, um, you know, circling areas of damage and we'll take pictures from every angle um, and then slowly but surely component by component on the helmet I'll start taking the helmet apart and measuring absolutely everything that I can um, and then taking comparison measurements from the sort of pristine helmet if you will and that lets us compare where the line has been crushed how much the line has been crushed by what's happened to the shell where that damage has occurred look at things like the harness for instance um, Susanna's hat came back to us and the harness was perfectly capable of being reattached and adjusted back on uh, head form for testing. So we know that no real, you know, the harness had expanded as it's designed to do under these kinds of loads, but it hadn't been broken or permanently damaged, which is good news. 
once I've taken all those kinds of measurements and photos, I then start to look at previous reports and academic literature to get an idea of what kind of forces have been applied to the helmet, how much damage has occurred and what would have needed to happen to that helmet. Additionally, um, we send a questionnaire out to riders who respond with these, who come to us with these helmets um, that asks a range of questions, sort of what they were doing, what sort of ground conditions were they on, what injuries they sustained, what they remember happening. Um, and I'll also ask them for any pictures they had of the fall. And in this case, Susanna shared some images with us. And that's vital to building a picture of what happened to the helmet, what happened to the rider, what kind of forces applied to it. Mm. And in this case, obviously, those pictures showed that Susanna's horse had had landed on, on the helmet on her head. So, Ben, the crux of the issue, you spent a long time looking at Susanna's hat and, and analysing it in all those ways you've just described. What did you what did you find? So um, we know from the nature of the fall and the kind of accident that Susanna had with her horse that she would have experienced a significant amount of force going through um, her head. Uh, from the academic literature, we know that um, there's been a study done by Michael Gilchrist um, in Ireland. He's looked at dropping, this is going to be slightly grim and I apologise, that he, he's dropped horse cadavers onto um, the same sort of instrumented bodies that are used in crash tests for cars to get an assessment of the force. We know for this kind of pause onto that and where which part of the horse hit Susanna's head, her head would have sustained um, anywhere between 8,000 and 12,000 um, newtons of force. And to put that into sort of context, that's between 800 kilos and 1,200 kilos. It's equivalent of a mini resting on her head. So a huge amount of force and energy was then transmitted into Susanna's head. This meant that the liner crushed and as Helen's described you can see from the pictures that due to the flexibility in the um, harness that on the helmet she was wearing the helmet is sort of pinched up off her head ever so slightly which is where the huge dents become in because at that point the skull's no longer present so there's less resistance to that force but all that damage and crushing absorbed a huge quantity of that energy and therefore protected her skull. We know from some internal testing we've done that champion hats will reduce that kind of transmitted force in the region of 70-80%. And so, although there's a huge force applied to her head, the actual force that got through to her skull is relatively smaller. That's why her injuries were the, the small skull fracture as opposed to something more catastrophic, which if you look at just the hat in isolation, you'd assume that she would have had horrific injuries compared to what she got. Yeah, absolutely. And this is a point that Helen touched on, but I want to be very clear um, and just take you over again, Ben. Um, you mentioned the harness and that there's, there was a slight give and stretch in the harness and the helmet coming away from Susanna's head. And I think that it's not widely known that harnesses are meant to give on riding helmets and that in that situation, a helmet should come slightly away from the head. I think we're all about, you know, oh, this hat must fit me, it must stay on my head. But the hat did behave as it was meant to in that situation with that slight loosening of the harness that allowed the, the, the helmet to come slightly away from the head. Just run us through that. Yeah, so the, the material, the webbing the harness is made of, like any material, if you apply force to it, it will move ever so slightly um 
the standards that we design our helmet, that we use as a base for when we're designing our helmets, um, specify certain tests to determine the strength of these harness systems. Um, the PAS 0115, past 015, 2011 standard tells us that under that retention strength testing, you're allowed up to 30 millimeters, so three centimeters of movement in the head form when on the when it's yanked, try to be yanked out the helmet, and then the recovery of the harness to keep the head from there. Once the test is over, you're only allowed two and a half centimeters of total movement. So we know that if you went for less movement than that, um, or if you achieve greatly less movement than that, you run the risk of the harness could snap if the harness isn't that flexible. So by having that allowed given the harness, it means that the harness can deal with the forces applied to it and keeps your helmet there. Whereas if you are allowed no millimeters of movement under that test, you run the risk of the helmet, well, the harness purely snapping once greater forces have applied and therefore the helmet coming off the head. And in this case, the harness allowed the helmet to move up slightly and that then that crushing happened at a point when Susanna's head was not actually inside it. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, so that's that's what we've seen in this case is because of that flexibility in the harness um, under the, the extreme loads that happened in this case, the helmet was pushed or pulled slightly up off her head and the harness, the given the harness allowed for that to happen. And that's where we saw the huge dents in her helmet forming were in those regions where her head was no longer there. Mm. And all that is exactly what you would expect and hope for of a helmet in this situation. Yeah, the helmet is in that state because her head isn't. Yeah, exactly. And that's a great way of putting it, Ben. Thank you so much for running us through all that. And as Susanna said, this emphasizes the fact that you need to make sure that your helmet is up to date, that you're replacing it on a regular cycle. And I'm guessing that with that, Helen, I'm going to bring you back in to talk about this. You need to be on top of what standard helmet you're going to buy when you're doing that replacing. And Ben mentioned the PAS standards just then. Helen, I'm going to let you explain this to us. What are the different standards out there? And if people were looking to replace a helmet after an accident or on a regular renewal cycle, what standards should they be looking for? Okay, so there are um, five main standards uh, in the world. So we have the American Snell Foundation standard that we're currently on Snelly 2016. We have the British Paso 15 2011, uh, the European VG1. We have a further American standard, which is the ASTM F116315 and the Australia New Zealand 3838 currently on 2006 version. So you see why people get confused because there are, there are quite a few out there and quite a lot of people, quite a lot of manufacturers um, choose to certify the helmets to more than one standard. Um, not all standard tests are the same though. Each one of those different standards will look for different performance requirements and prioritise different performance requirements. So it's really important that people do know what they're buying. So you've got not all the standards test for the same types of accident scenarios. So namely, we have the five main test criteria, which is uh, crush, and then you've got linear impact, penetration, harness strength, and stability. Now, some set performance requirements higher than others for, for those uh, five test um, areas. So you get 
higher crush resistance from a Paso 1.5 hat as you would from a VG1. So when we make a hat to Paso 1.5, it has to withstand um, 800 newtons. But if somebody made a hat to VG1, then it would only have to withstand 630 newtons. So there is quite a difference just between those two standards. So it's really important that people understand that. And there are lots and lots of charts about um, out in the in you know in the wider public that people can get hold of that stipulate which standard tests for which of those five tests and what the performance criteria is so that you can make an absolute direct and, and accurate comparison. And then you've got two of those standards, for example, um, that don't test for crush or penetration at all. So the ASTM don't have any crush test or penetration test. So if you've got a hat that is only tested to ASTM, then it has not been put through its paces for either crush or penetration. So the two most widely used standards in the UK are the British Paso 15 um, and the European VG1. Uh, at Champion, we don't make anything less than Paso 15. All of our models, as the, uh, as the absolute lowest limit, we, we make to Paso 15. We want everything to be as safe as possible. So, And we also have the Pro Ultimate, which is made to the Snell standard, which gives you a, an, an extra amount of crush resistance as well, because Snell tests to 1,000 newtons. So, so that gives you a little bit more crushing force if, if that's the type of discipline or you know type of event that you'll be doing and that you want that extra crush resistance then Snell is the hat to look for but mm. Paso 15 is is absolutely brilliant for giving you all round excellent protection um, higher than all the other standards in the marketplace okay so that's the one to look out for and can you give us a quick reminder about MIPS it's the multi-directional impact protection system it's something that we talked about in some detail on episode two of yes, this series mm -hmm. <laughs> but again it's quite a long time ago so I'm I, this is not very fair because I feel like I'm asking you to sum up 40 minutes of chat in one question but Helen <laughs> no, give no, us a no quick worries. I give you a, a brief synopsis <laughs> <laughs> a quick reminder of what what MIPS does and looks like um, so, so MIPS is a type of component which we add to give an additional type of protection. So it's very important for people to understand that just putting MIPS into a hat doesn't make, MIP, doesn't make the hat safer if the hat doesn't start off with all of the top performance requirements from the other five kinds of tests. So you, you've always got to bear in mind that, you know, You've, you've got to have that top hat with the five main test criteria, crush, linear impact, penetration, all those things really, really important. Then when you add the MIPS component, that gives you that added uh, extra protection for a different type of scenario. So the MIPS component will protect you in, in an injury that um, has some kind of rotational motion. It's been shown that injury from rotational motion um, causes concussion. And this occurs where the skull and the brain move independently to each other at differing rates. And that causes a shearing of the connective tissue. And it's the tissue damage which causes the concussive type injuries. So wearing helmets with MIPS may reduce rotational motion and ultimately um, may reduce any associated injuries in that way because it enables to because it gives you that 
slip plane, your school has that little bit of um, slip on impact and then your brain and your skull are moving in the same direction at the same time and that causes less of that sharing of the connective tissue. And that's how MIPS works. And if riders are looking at a helmet and they want to check out what standards it meets and whether it has MIPS, where should they look and what are they looking for? So usually inside the helmet, um, we have to put it, uh, uh, all the standards, kite marks, CE marks, all that kind of thing has to go um, uh, on the helmet, not just on the notice to users. You will find it on the notice to users or should find it on the notice to users. So you look at all your swing tickets and then look inside your helmet. They can either be stitched or printed into the fabric crown liner, which is your comfort padding, or some manufacturers actually put put it on the actual EPS, on the polystyrene liner underneath the fabric um, of, your, of your comfort padding. So you have to have a little poke around in there and, and if you can't find it on the, um, on the comfort padding, which it is on our champion ones, you can see it immediately, immediately as you look into the helmet, you can see all the standards. And then also you, you're looking for the kite mark and if it's a mitts hat, then Ours have the little yellow uh, dots, the little yellow pin, which we place on the harness. So that's always on the back um, of the helmet on the harness. So look for the little yellow dot for the MIPS element. And Helen, you just mentioned kite mark there. Now you're testing my memory again, looking back to the first uh, episodes of this series. But I think the kite mark is about showing sort of batch quality in that every batch lives up to the standards. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah. So it's a quality mark, the kite mark. It's nothing to do with standards. Um, when you apply for a kite mark, you have to test your helmet to the standard that you originally type tested your helmet to when you put it on the market. So when we put a new helmet model on the market, we have to have a CE mark, a UKCA mark. Um, and to do that, we have to show that we pass a level of standard, that we meet the PPE regulation requirements. So when you test for a kite mark, you test again to that same standard. So ours would be, for example, PASO 15. So we test it at type for PASO to PASO 15. And then every batch that we put through the factory following that, we will test again to PASO 15. And when it passes, they give us our quality mark, which is the kite mark. And then that then can be displayed uh, in the lining of the helmet and on the swing tickets. Mm, great. Well, thank you, Helen. Ben, coming back to you for a moment, Helen touched on testing of helmets there. Um, is that something that you're involved in as well as this sort of analysis for helmets when they come back? Is it something that, that you can tell us a bit more about how that's done at Champion? Yeah, so... Um... As as production engineer, I not only deal with returned helmets back to us post accident. I also help um, design and develop our, any new products. And so, sort of in the development part of it, when you're looking at a helmet, there's sort of two routes you can go down. You can design a helmet, then test it, see what standard it meets, and then get it certified to that standard. Um, that's not the way we do it at Champion. At Champion, we start with PASO 15 currently as our baseline of performance. Uh, we don't want to go any lower than that. So we see what the requirements of that are and we start building out the helmet. And so that will involve uh, several rounds of 
designing the EPS liner and shell and testing early production samples, seeing how they're behaving against the requirements of that standard. So impacting them at high velocity, crushing them um, to the crush requirements, doing the penetration tests, looking at where the performance is, where we would like it to be, and then making changes in an iterative way to the design so that end helmet we get is not only meeting pass but exceeding pass um, and so there's a lot of my job which is sort of regular testing of development ideas um, and running it through our equipped fully equipped lab we have at champion which has all the equipment we need to do all the kinds of testing under the varying conditions um, such as high temperature so all Helmets that have to meet pass have to be tested at plus 50 degrees C. They also have to be tested at minus 20 degrees C to make sure that the material behavior doesn't change uh, at temperature extremes, not suggesting that anybody rides at those temperatures, but the helmet needs to perform at those temperatures in case they did. And uh, Ben, I, I wanted to ask you this question earlier, but I didn't want to interrupt the uh, the very sciencey and uh, technology based bit. When you get a helmet like uh, like Susanna's come in, does that happen often? And is that a bit of a red letter day in your job? Is that one of the most interesting parts of parts of your job to get in a helmet and, and analyze it like that? Yeah, it's we get accident returns fairly regularly. I wouldn't want to put a number to it, but um, helmets that are like Susanna's, they're very rare. Um, they're sort of I think since I've been at Champion we've had two in that condition and uh, our previous engineer Tony would have dealt with a few over his much longer career but sort of in the tens of over 30 years um, it is a very interesting day because we see thousands of these helmets go out a week and very rarely we get one back so to see how well it's performed and what actually has happened to it in the real world gives us a real insight into tying up what we know from experience and in the lab to how our products are actually performing in the worst case scenarios. Mm. And how long have you worked for Champion, Ben? At this point, a little over a year now. So, Yeah, just to give context to that answer. Well, it sounds really interesting that sort of having those damaged helmets back helps that feedback loop of improving improving helmets and, and testing and standards and safety. Susanna, just to bring you back in before we finish, you've heard sort of a full assessment of your hat from Ben now. What's your reaction to that? What are your sort of thoughts? Well, I think um, the most important thing that I've heard today is Ben say that the helmet was in the state that it was because my head wasn't. You know, I've, I have lots of friends competing, doing stuff with horses, and sadly other friends have suffered head injuries and they've been far more seriously injured than I was. So really, I just, I'm incredibly fortunate that I've come away from this very, very, very heavy fall, essentially with no permanent damage to myself which is just extraordinary i think so and i mean i'm really really looking to get forward to getting back out there again and competing this spring and wearing a champion helmet with the mips technology that um they've just been telling you about and uh i wouldn't be doing it unless i was had that champion helmet last autumn that essentially i think saved my life well, it's good to hear that you're looking forward to getting back out there onto the competition field in your new helmet. Finally, from you, Susanna, uh, messages to our listeners. I know you touched on one of them earlier, but I think we should emphasise it again. What do you want people to remember? Please remember to check your hat. Please replace them regularly. 
I know they are expensive, but as everyone always says, you only have one head, look after it, put the best helmet that you can on top of it, and then good luck. <laughs> I'd also add, like to add to that, Pippa, obviously it's very, very important to understand what you're buying. Um, and where safety is concerned, it's not always the case that you get what you pay for. At Champion, our lowest priced hat is just as safe as our highest priced hat. Everything is made to pass 015 um, standard, which is the highest all round protection. Um, and don't be fooled by thinking that if you're spending a thousand pounds on a hat, it's much safer. Yeah, I mean, I put it in perspective, my X Air that I was wearing in that fall, I think cost me about £90 from my local tax shop. And, you know, as we've all heard today, it did exactly what it was supposed to do. I think it's a very important message, Susanna. You know, this, this is the trouble people do really believe that they're getting safer hats if they spend humongous amounts of money. Yeah, yeah. I think knowing all of my team chasing mates, I hate to say it, we fall off quite a lot. We're pro probably a little bit more blasé than, than some are. And there would be a thought of, oh, I've fallen off again. Oh, I've got to go and buy another hat. And the problem is you don't know. I mean, the analysis that Ben did on the hat, you know, I couldn't comprehend the damage that could be inside a hat that you can't see and how much that liner has actually possibly crushed in a few soft falls early on and you know oh i've had a little fall there and 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 that actually obviously is then compromising how much energy it can absorb if you have a big when it fall. really needs to yeah yeah, yeah. Helen and Susanna mentioned about replacing your helmet regularly, even if you haven't had a, a big crash. What's the recommendation on that? How often should riders replace their helmets? So if you're riding every day and um, your helmet is in use every day, then we say you should be replacing it every 12 months. Occasional use from 12 months to three years and very, very light use, uh, three to five years, you should be replacing it. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Helen, and to Susanna Standing for joining us today too, and as well to Champions Engineer Ben Hanna. If you'd like to understand more about Susanna's accident, Champion are also running a digital advertorial on the Horse & How website, including images of the fall, so do keep an eye out for that. So that is the last episode in the Champion Safety Series. I really hope everybody has enjoyed listening to them and learned something. I'm definitely much more clued up on hat safety than I was a year ago. And remember that all the episodes are available in the Horse and Ham podcast back catalogue. You can go back through and listen to them if you haven't already done so or you need a reminder. We've covered the Windrush Equestrian Foundation. It's recently been renamed the Wesco Equestrian Foundation, but we spoke to some, some riders and people involved in that foundation, including Pippa Funnel. We also covered the Riding a Dream Academy and the technology behind hats and body protectors, how to choose those vital pieces of safety equipment and so much more. So do go back and listen through to the previous five episodes if you haven't done so already. Thank you to all of our guests on the series and thank you for listening. <laughs>